0: On the very idea, a philosophy podcast. Hello, everyone. Today it is scorching outside, about 36, with jungle like humidity yet again. I'm trying to end this series on qualia. At first I thought it was going to be too short. And now it's turning into a bit of a colossus. I overcompensate. That's what I do. Uh, Usually I like to stick to three episodes or two episodes. Keep it a little more concise. But this is the fourth one. I am sorry about this. But, uh, you know, why I try to do this podcast is for a few reasons. But one is that I like to be able to remember things that I read. So... If I actually make something I read into a podcast form, it sticks in my head, you know, it's in there. I love to read. I really do. Uh, But I retain so little. Uh, Shameful um, little amount that I retain. I would say input of reading compared to output of creativity is like 99.9 to 1. I imagine a lot of people are in the same boat, you know, as a you know on the internet you're often just a consumer of information and there's so much information out there and with that type of ratio you're not retaining much you're not you're not really processing information you're just absorbing it like a well like a sponge or a sponge retains it anyway so part of it is for my own comprehension you know for my own comprehension but perhaps that leads to things going on too long and also I like to get kind of repetitive in a podcast as you know i say things many many times in many different ways because and revisit ideas throughout a podcast because partly you know as I do the podcast I try to figure stuff out myself you know it's a process it's a hermeneutic process that hermeneutic circle if I can you know put a philosophical spin on it but sometimes I may it uh, gets me tangled up in knots with uh, you know much ado about nothing but let's let go of that serious matter for now and let's get on to the game i'm gonna say a quote the philosopher is the answer is a famous philosopher's name and you tell me who said it you got that okay here we go the quote when one buys a pair of shoes one is buying three things the right shoe the left shoe and the pair Okay, let's listen to that. Think about that quote. It seems like it might be a philosophy of language person. Someone of the analytic school, I believe. Let's hear it again. When one buys a pair of shoes, one is buying three things. The right shoe, the left shoe, and the pair. Okay, let me count down here, people. Five, four, three, two, one. Ding, ding, ding. It's none other than AJ Ayer. Ooh, the fighter of Mike Tyson, the guy we talked about last week. So I had to bring up a name again, but I just wanted to do a quote from him in honor of how much uh, much joy that story gave to me about uh, him confronting Mike Tyson. It made me smile. Not that I have it over Tyson. Don't get me wrong. Don't want to start a fight with him. That guy's impressive in the ring. Um, And I find his voice kind of soothing. But it's not often you see the world of, blo- uh, world of boxing and the world of philosophy collide. Anyway, On to the main part of the episode, and I promise I'll finish this thing off. So let's get into it. Uh, After talking about Frank Jackson last week, I found some more interesting ways of talking about knowledge that cannot be reduced to materialist analysis. In other words, knowledge that is contained in qualia rather than in quantitative data. So let me elaborate here by looking at C.D. Broad. Somewhat underappreciated British philosopher C.D. Broad explored this issue in the 1930s and uses the example of ammonia, interestingly enough. um, Ammonia, as you know, has a very strong smell. Chicken poop or... Crap has a lot of ammonia in it. It is the dominant putang of chicken droppings. The French used this as a cruel form of torture in a a Thai prison back during colonial times, I believe, in the late 19th century. They built a prison with a chicken coop overhead so that the chicken droppings would fall on the prisoners, causing madness from the ammonia and even death. And, you know, I bet they congratulated themselves on the cleverness and civilization in coming up with that. And the nasty stuff, nasty history. No, that's not CD Broad's comments. Uh, that's admittedly is just my, me myself trying to work something disgusting I read on Reddit into the podcast. Uh, I'm sorry about that. Uh, it's never again, people. Never again. Uh, on the CD Broad, Broad claims that even if a complete mechanistic theory of chemistry were true, there still would be a property. Of ammonia, that a mathematical archangel, a stand-in for an all-knowing genius, presumably, endowed with unlimited mathematical skills and gifted with the further power of perceiving the microscopic structure of autumns, could not predict, namely, its smell. So if he knew everything, he could not predict its smell. It's funny they use an archangel here. Broad was writing in the 30s, but, uh, you know, we just could not use... An example of an archangel now was something of an all um, an all-knowing being, um, but maybe in the thirties it was still there was still enough religious connotations floating around that that would be a familiar entity to use when we were talking about uh, all-knowing beings. Anyway, that just yeah, just shows how history flows. Now, in the words of C.D. Broad himself, he, the archangel, would know exactly what the microscopic structure of ammonia must be, but he would be totally unable to predict that a substance with this structure must smell as ammonia does when it gets into the human nose. The utmost that he would predict on this subject would be that certain changes would play take place in the mucous membrane, the olfactory nerves, and so on. But he could not possibly know that these changes would be accompanied by the appearance of a smell in general, or of the peculiar smell of ammonia in particular, unless so, someone told him so, or he had smelled it for himself. So, that would that, that's Broad's words, CD Broad's words. So it seems that there is something that science leaves on the table here, like in the Frank Jackson example, you know, a small ounce of the world that retains a little magic. Since the Enlightenment, or perhaps uh, Francis Bacon, our world has become demystified. We now know that thunder isn't the gods playing a little ten pin in heaven, and that a rain dance may be moving and beautiful, but the clouds just so don't seem to care so the space of the magical has gotten a lot smaller a whole lot smaller it's backed itself into a minuscule little corner and you can sometimes emphasize with that ruler that historical ruler I don't know what is Genghis Khan I'm not sure who cried because there were no lands left to conquer remember that emperor who cried because there was no lands left to conquer each generation wants a little bit of work left to do on the big issues. And it seems a l- bit nice to think that some of the big work is still left to be done. I want the answers, but I also want, uh, I want to be an explorer myself. That is, if science can explain qualia, or for that matter, if philosophy can explain qualia, you know? British philosopher of mind, Colin McGinn, says that all this stuff is beyond our mind's pay grade. This self-understanding of the mind by the mind, uh, it's just something that we can't hope to achieve with our small boy brains and a big boy brain problem, right? Science or philosophy as we can conceive, you know, us humans can conceive, is just too limited. Anyway, sit up. Straighten that tie. Look presentable because there's a lot more work left to be done. And that's a good thing, I think. You know, I, I think that's a good thing. Um, so there are still more lands left to conquer. You, the conqueror, you know, in an academic sense. Yeah, there's there's still a lot more work left to do. So rejoice. Roll up the sleeves. Let's get into it. Okay. That's it for... Uh, and I just want to add a few more comments here. at the end I just want to I just want to talk a somewhat related note about media coverage of philosophy. Now, there's not much media coverage of philosophy. It's not exactly the most clickbaity thing, but uh, those people who do often make it into the newspapers tend to be the philosophers who make more provocative claims, you know, you got uh, Daniel Dennett as we too, we talked about Richard Rorty, Patricia Churchland, uh, for example, Dennett and Churchland have uh, both done TED talks, um, so you know that's the you know the epitome of public intellectual, uh, slick public intellectual. So I was you know, I was on a philosophy uh, forum the other day, and someone asked me why most philosophers deny the mental. Why do most philosophers deny that consciousness exists? And uh, I agreed with this assessment. I was like, yeah, they they do, don't they? That's that's the way um, philosophers tend to approach this. because I too thought that the dominant strain of philosophy was this kind of eliminative materialism that denied consciousness based on uh, what I had read in the last recent years with the media coverage. I thought cognitive science as kind of the discoveries the discoveries of cognitive science kind of pushed us in that direction. So, I decided to do a little research, and on the site philpapers.org, phil for philosophy papers, uh, phil for philosophy, philpapers.org, um... They did a survey in uh, 2009, you know, not really long ago in terms of philosophy. They did a survey in 2009 of 3,200 professional philosophers. I think David Chalmers uh, might have been, uh, Australian philosopher David Chalmers might have been one of the people behind the survey. Um, Anyway, they asked a question about whether a zombie without consciousness is possible. Philosophers often claim that uh, if we do not have a qualitative states, mental states, qualia, then we are known as philosophical zombies. Bennett, for example, argues that uh, we are in effect philosophical zombies. But most philosophers agree that such conception of humans as philosophical zombies is inconceivable. We must have some sort of qualitative states. Only 24% consider it a metaphysical possibility that such zombies can exist. Which is a much weaker claim than saying consciousness doesn't exist. So this surprised me. So, you know, not only are most philosophers not eliminative materialists, uh, they actually don't even uh, 24% only 24% consider it a metaphysical possibility that such zombies can exist and that, you know that's a much weaker claim than denying consciousness um, so i thought the denial of qualia was much higher uh, but i thought that because in following the media it seems the provocative view which is the, the which is the denial of consciousness gets more airtime and uh, more print and maybe also because it's more friendly to science it, uh, it's less deeply philosophical. It gets more print. But professional philosophers are not so quick to reject qualia and the, and the mental. I always thought the philosophical world was academic and boring enough in a way, you know, in a way that I love, of course, uh, to be safe from media bias and the clickbait pandemic. But I guess uh, nowhere is an island, so, you know, clickbaity things tend to rule the day. And, uh... It's been a while since I was in uh, grad school, so I mean uh, yeah, so the way I keep track with the philosophical world besides through journals is you know the occasional article in the New York Times or something like that and uh, but uh, it, or through you know a TED talk but these media coverages don't really give justice about what is going on in philosophy. In general, philosophy in general often proceeds much more slowly, is much less provocative, but you know, nevertheless, it still maintains its contrary impulse. But it's just not something that can be eh, be given a clickbaity headline. And there's nothing wrong with Daniel Dennett and Churchland for doing TED Talks, it's a good way to get your feet wet into the philosophical world, but it might give you a skewed vision of what is actually going on in academia. Anyway, that's a ramble. Ah, thank you for listening. On the very idea, a philosophy podcast.